This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to the Authority Podcast today. I am very excited to have Michael Horn with us, who's been on Transformative Principle before and been all over the place. Uh, His latest book is called From Reopen to Reinvent. And so we're going to be jumping in, talking about how we can, instead of reopening our schools, we can reinvent our schools. Michael, welcome to the Authority Podcast. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, you are definitely someone whose blog posts I read on a regular basis, your newsletter, I get it. And um, you always have insightful things that you're doing and talking about what right now, we're going to get to the book, but what right now besides the book just has your attention and, and is something that you're thinking a lot about. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about why people make changes in their daily lives in general. So I'm working on a new book around why do people switch careers, which is obviously topical for a lot of educators right now. But I think it's a broader set of principles that frankly is in the current book that we'll talk about soon, but also maps to a lot of parts of life about what causes us to say, today is the day that I'm actually going to make this profound change in my life. Yeah, I like that. And as someone who recently made two big career changes, one going out on my own and the second one joining at Elements, that has been very much on the top of my mind lately as well. So um, as you're getting close to finishing that one, I definitely love to have you back on again to talk love about to that. Love to talk about it. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to. I'm hearing also from a lot of people who are going through those same questions of, especially over the last couple of years in education, a lot of principals that I work with have really been struggling with that question of, of is this the right place for me to be spending all my time. So that's exciting. Um, What little nugget can you share with us that you're finding that you think is really fascinating? It's a couple things, I guess. One, we've over hundreds of individuals changing jobs. We figured out the four core sets of reasons that come together that cause people to make a switch in their career. So that's really interesting because it's not more money. It's not 
more respect or things like that. Those are in, baked into these things that cause people to switch, but it's not just like a flat answer like that. It's much more multidimensional. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, we've been working with dozens of individuals to actually help them make better switches. So understanding why they're leaving and then help them prototype options beforehand for what they could do next before they actually go switch. Because so many people, they make the switch and then they realize that was the wrong fit, right? We know like a fifth of people who've resigned during the great resignation regret what they did. Or Mm -hmm. we we did the survey at Harvard Business School and, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it was... It was like, you know, 40 or 50% of people realized within 12 months that a new job that they had gone to was a bad fit. And so our big question is, how do you learn before you make that switch so that you de-risk the next thing that you take? And uh, that really requires you to have a deep understanding of what's driving you right now. What are you trying to optimize for? And what are the trade-offs you're going to be willing to make? Because no job, as you know, is is perfect, right? When you went out as an individual, it gave you certain freedoms, flexibilities, allowed you to spend your time on things that mattered to you. But there were trade-offs. You weren't working with a team, with an organization. I'm just guessing. And then you get to go to Ed Elements. And I'm, I'm sure they're amazing, but I'm sure there's trade-offs <laughs> there too, right? There's certain things that you can't do anymore in the same way or have the same flexibility, I imagine, being part yeah. of an organization. And so really, we want to reframe trade-offs as something that you consciously make, decide to make, so that it allows you to make progress in your life, as opposed to settling for something. Mm-hmm. We want to really reframe that so it's a conscious choice. And process that we've created seems to be working really, really well with the individuals. And we hope it's one of those things that... uh Maybe we'll displace what colors my parachute uh, in the yeah. longer run. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now you're talking. I like that approach of of trying to make the next choice better. Um, I'm working with a, a principal right now who is uh, wanting to stay in education but go to a different school. And because it's September when we're talking about this and not April, then we have a lot more time and flexibility to work through that over the course of the year. And it's a really neat thing to think about what she wants in the next school and how she's going to know that it's a better system than where she's currently at and recognizing all those trade-offs. And I think that this is a good place to tie it back to to this current book from Reopen to Reinvent because one of the things that I noticed as we shut down everything for the pandemic was that we told kids that school as we have been doing it for the last several decades is all just made up and it's not real and we can just stop it at any time and that is a difficult thing for people to admit and recognize that that's what we were saying but when we closed schools we froze grades we canceled tests those were all things that were like we planned the whole school year around taking standardized tests and did preparation and practice for it throughout the year and then we just said this doesn't matter anymore and And because we made such a big change, regardless of the reasons why, we sent a message that maybe was intentional. What's your take on that first? How do you feel about what I just said? Yeah, first, I think it's super provocative and it's not being discussed nearly enough, but I think you're right. We we systematically said these things are all of lower priority than 
health or well-being or whatever. And, and those are obviously important, but then we find out actually kids weren't nearly as at risk as we thought they were from the pandemic. And actually the health risk might've been keeping them alone, isolated at home in many cases. And so I think we sent an incredibly am amount of mixed messages through that. So that, that's a quick surface level take, but I think at a deeper level, it, it maps to this framework that we've been learning more and more about, about what causes people to make switches in their lives. If I could just briefly describe yeah, it, then, then we can geek out on it. And in the book, I give a high level account of it, but it, it's basically it, what's motivating people to make change in their lives are two two sets of forces. The first is the push of the current situation. So something about my current life is not all it's cracked up to be. I feel like there could be something I could do better, whatever it is. And then there's the pull of the new, you know, like I could move to a new school, say, or I could move to a new job or whatever else. And those things sound great. But at the same time, there's two sets of forces that are holding us back in place. The first is what we call the anxiety of the new solution. So it's like, oh, gee, if I switch and become a principal at this new school, you know, all these worries start creeping in. Will my community really like me? Will I be able to implement all the reforms I've hoped to? Or if I'm switching to a new school for my kid, will, will I get along with the parents? Will the kid find friends? They have all these amazing extracurriculars maybe that I'm drawn to, but will they like any of those? Wh whatever it is, you get anxieties. And then the other thing that's holding you back in place, and this is the one I think we want to spend the time on, is what we call the habits of the present. So this is like, well, you know, doing school or, or whatever is going to work, but at least I always know I can go back to the way I've always done it and, and I can sort of let it keep going. Uh, and habits are incredibly sticky. We know from a lot of research, Daniel Kahneman and others, that people overweight what they're going to lose over the things that they might have to gain from a switch in their lives. So... Mm -hmm people are very wed to the way that they've always done things. And I think parents in schooling, historically speaking, have always, the majority have always been set it and forget it parents. This is your school. It's where you live. This is where you go. I might grumble about all these things I don't like or wish were better. My kid might grumble about all these things that they don't like or wish were better, but this is our school. We do, This is just what we do. And I think to your point in the pandemic, in a single you know, fell stroke, we wiped out a ton of habits for people. Mm -hmm. And those habits were anchors about how things had been done. And all of a sudden, kids and parents don't have those. They, you know, school was closed for however long. Grading was not done for however long. Tests were not done for however long. And that all of a sudden reduced a ton of friction that was maybe holding them back from innovating in their lives and responding to those pushes of what wasn't good enough and those pulls of, gee, I've always wanted to go to that micro school or gee, I've always wanted to try that project-based learning charter school down the street or, or gee, I've always wanted to do an internship and maybe go to school part-time, whatever it is, right? All of a sudden, all these things are unlocked for people because there's a lot less that's holding them in place and incidentally, I'm not sure our, I, I'm curious your take. I'm not sure our traditional district schools have realized that that dynamic just occurred. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because I believe that the people leading those schools and districts are very smart people who are totally. very aware of what people are thinking and feeling and, and all that. And yet, for some reason, going back to what you were saying about how hard it is for us to cut, to change our habits, they assume that kids are just going to come back to school when they reopen. And one fascinating thing for me was to look at my district that I was in when the pandemic happened and see we were already in a declining enrollment state, but that declining enrollment shot up tremendously the year of COVID. And then kids did wow. not come back. And and so when you have, you know, 10% of your population that doesn't come back the following year, that is a big deal. And I think a lot of people just assume people will start coming back. They'll realize these other things don't work and all that. And yet, for some reason, going back to what you were saying about how hard it is for us to cut, to change our habits, they assume that kids are just going to come back to school when they reopen. And one fascinating thing for me was to look at my district that I was in when the pandemic happened and see they'll want to come back. And the challenge is, is that during that whole time, you have people with cousins who are of similar ages in different states being treated completely differently in how whether or not they went to school and things like that. And it was very easy for families to say, hmm, my kids are back in school in that state or my nephews and nieces are back in school in that state, but my kids are not back in school here or vice versa. And I'm not happy with that. And so we're going to make a change. And I know several people who have made those changes when I mean, even my family, my wife said when we got married and I was going into education, she's like, I'm glad you're going into education because I never want to homeschool our kids. And what did she suggest when we moved out of Alaska to Washington? She said, we need to homeschool our kids because the school is going to be all virtual. We don't know anybody. I would much rather homeschool our kids than send them to a virtual school that where we don't know anybody and have no connections. And this is someone like very close to me, my wife, who adamantly has said, I don't want to homeschool. And then she's the one suggesting it, which just, it blew my mind. And a lot of people made those decisions. That's fascinating, by the way. But I think it's the power. You're right. Like the habit is gone. And all of a sudden, they're just unconstrained and free to start innovating in their lives and things that seemed sacrilege before all of a sudden are on the table. Homeschooling might have been that thing that she said, I'm never doing it. I'm never doing it. I'm never doing it. But she's sort of intrigued, right? You, yeah. you both are in communities where you know some homeschoolers. You can see some of the benefits of it, no doubt. But all the pain points and all those things probably outweighed, all of a sudden, the pain points of going to a school that's not meeting your needs so visibly without the community and so forth, that was so much worse than the alternative that all of a sudden all the weighting changes. Now, I'm sure a lot of district administrators, to your point, super smart people are sitting there looking and they're like, just give it a couple of years, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're going to be back. But what they're not counting on is that for a significant percentage of the population, not everyone, but a significant percentage, they're finding now way more success in these alternative models. And while some of them will come back, some of them are going to convince their friends to join them in these alternative models because, you know, they're, they're, they're wrestling. I mean, you, you said you're in the state of Washington, like Seattle public schools remains in total turmoil for a whole confluence of reasons that have continued. And there are a lot of families that are saying, no, we're out. And mm -hmm. 
I don't know what the tipping point is that's going to cause the public school administrators to say, boy, we've got to innovate as well. But I guess what I'm hoping to do through the book from reopen to reinvent is say, here are some things you ought to be leaning into to reinvent the experience. Here's how you create some capacity to do so. And by the way, if you don't, there's a whole bunch of education entrepreneurs now who are reading this as well, who are going to create something really exciting for those students and for those parents. So either way, they're going to get their option ultimately. And, And that's a very different landscape from what it was five years ago. Yeah. And I've felt that this pull towards options was happening across the country and everybody's going to move in this direction eventually. Some with vouchers, some with charters, some with micro schools, whatever the case may be. But the thing is, is that with the way that technology enables us to do things that we haven't been able to do before, the pull to that is nearly impossible to overcome. And so as I talk with school leaders about this, they Again, like you said, they think it gives a couple of years, it'll come back and they're barely hanging on as well. And that's the thing is that everybody's feeling this stress because last year was really a difficult year. And a lot of people recognize that things that we thought were going back to normal weren't going back to normal. And so what are some of the things you think school districts must do to innovate and to reinvent so that they can find that success. And really a big part of this, Michael, is getting kids back in the school and getting our enrollment numbers up again. And that's something that we haven't really ever had to worry about. Yeah. It's a totally new landscape. First, let me just say one thing about the entrepreneurs and then I'll answer your question. Sure. I think the important thing for a district administrator to realize is that these education entrepreneurs, these parents who are opting for new choices, they're continuing to innovate. They're not staying pat with their current findings and you meant or offerings. And you mentioned the rise of technology and how it's pushed toward a lot more choice for many years now. I think the really important thing to recognize is that the technology is getting better, but it's not just the technology. It's Mm -hmm. how the technology interacts with in-person educators and communities that is so game-changing, right? It's like I can do robust project-based learning in a community with 10 students and the technology is there to help me fill in the knowledge, but like I'm going to spend a lot of time hands-on, right? Working on interesting projects and use the technology to fill in the knowledge gap so that I can do these incredible problems and projects, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But it's that interaction that is getting better and better. And frankly, like a lot of parents like us are looking at it and like, wait a minute, I want my kids to have that. That sounds engaging, fun with friends and like real. And gosh, I wish I had had that opportunity. That's different again from saying, oh, it's just a flat online experience that looks basically like your mom and dad's educational experience (laughs) just online, right? Like it's very different. So, So that's, there's a lot of innovation going on there. And I think it blows past, and this is the big thing for districts now to start to turn to your question. Hold on. Don't go to the question yet because you made me think of another thing. So you know, um, uh, Liz Wiseman wrote the book Rookie Smarts, where when you act like a rookie and you don't know anything, then you significantly increase the amount that you learn and grow and develop early on. And so these education entrepreneurs are coming in and being brand new. And to be honest, they may not be very good at what they're doing, and they but they are seeking to learn and get better at the same time. And, and that's where they may not have hit everything 100% and been perfect in the first couple of years, but they're going to continue growing and learning, which is a totally different mentality 
than what most of our districts have of maintaining the status quo and keeping things and taking a long time to make decisions. And I think that that point is important and we just need to address that real quick because it'll be easy for them to overtake um, some districts, especially in small communities where the district isn't that big to begin with. It's such a good point. I hadn't thought about it either until you just brought it up. <laughs> but the uh, the testing and learning, the, the number of cycles that these entrepreneurs are free to do because they have to out of necessity, the velocity is so high that you're right, that they're learning and perfecting and getting better and better. Whereas if you're sort of stuck in the ground of how you've always done things, you're not getting those repetitions of learning effectively and improvement that occur. And it's interesting, I hearing you say that, I reflect on a, a network of Montessori schools that was sort of, I don't know if criticizing Summit Public Schools was exactly what they were doing, but a little bit of that. And they were saying, well, they're discovering a lot of what we've known in Montessori for, for decades. Full disclosure, I send my kids to a Montessori school. I absolutely love it. But what's interesting is that that Summit Public Schools does so many cycles of testing and learning right. every single year that their growth trajectory has been just incredible in terms of what they've discovered. And they're okay with jettisoning something that wasn't quite working because they're like, well, we built the tradition. We'll, we'll, we'll make it better, right? If we're, if we're trying to get better. So I think it's a really interesting point that it's easy to sort of poo-poo the entrepreneurs, but out of necessity and out of the fact that they don't have these legacy processes and traditions and cultures their cycles of learning are just extraordinarily rapid. Yeah. And I think that adds, if families send their kids there knowing that they're learning and figuring out, that's a lot different than sending to a school district where you should already have all this figured out. And there is a, a level of uh, patience and forgiveness on and benefit of the doubt for the education entrepreneurs where that just doesn't exist all the time with school districts when this district's been here for 75 years you should know how to educate my kids and this new place we've only been in business two years but we're trying our best and doing the best we can and if something's not working let us know so we can fix it it's a totally different approach 100 percent, and it's it's the it's the uh, george w bush uh, lesson right lowered expectations help <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and if you set expectations all of a sudden you look at it and say well like yeah they weren't doing that well yesterday but i'm going to go in there and tell them because we're going to work together to make it better yeah. whereas you're totally right the expectations when they fall short in the established way you're like oh my goodness they've been operating for 150 years why can't yeah. they figure this out it's a totally different vantage point and the psychology is totally different uh, as well. And it, it's similar, you know, Olin College in higher education, when they got their start uh, out of Massachusetts, incredible engineering school. The first class was a pilot class. And the idea was, we are going to invent this university together by working together. And so the expectations were, you're actually co-creating this with us. Of course, we right. don't have it figured out. But we're going to be a lot better by the time you graduate in four years, thanks to the work that you're doing with us, not us doing something to you. It, it just changes the mental model. Yeah, yeah, changes the dynamic. I think that's important. Okay, so let's talk about some things that I know I had a question in there, but I think we moved past it. I think one of the things that would be great to talk about is teachers are frontline people. They are working super hard. And what can we do for them to help them 
be successful and help them right now, not just like, well, you know, go back and get another degree. That's not the answer, right? So what can we do to help them be successful right now? Yeah. So I think there's two big things. Number one, districts have to get rid of the one size fits all mindset in the sense that thinking that there's going to be one school that's going to be a perfect fit for every single child and parent, which creates an unsustainable burden, I'd argue, mm -hmm. on the teachers trying to reach all these students and parents with vastly different priorities in their classroom and vastly different needs. And the answer isn't simply, I think, just use technology to individualize pace or path of learning. It's actually much deeper than that to our point. And so school districts creating ways of portfolio of school models or within a school, like thinking of it like a community center where you have different micro schools yourself or, or whatever it might be. And that answer can change if you're a rural school uh, with a small population or an urban with like lots of different choices. Right. But I think getting out of that one size fits all space for the administrators would help teachers a ton because right now they're just getting pelted with so many demands, many of which are at odds with each other. Like, you know, one one parent wants way more attention on the social emotional state of their child. And another's like, why are you spending time on that? I just want my kid excelling in academics. And if you try to cater to either one of those, neither one is happy. And so, yeah. okay, hold the second one. Cause I want to talk about that one size fits all model. I, this also creates a ton of stress for teachers because they are expected to recognize that every kid in their school, in their classroom is different but they're still forced to do this one size fits all thing. Whereas if you can take those shackles off and recognize that there's a lot of different ways to teach a lot of different kids, then they can go back to what they actually want to do, which I always say is teachers want to have conversations with kids that excite the kids. And if we can give them more opportunities to do that, then that is what we should be doing because they'll find more enjoyment in their work. They'll feel more fulfilled. And by the way, kids are going to learn a ton more because they're talking about things that they're interested in. And if there's one size fits all, it's talk with your kids about things that they're interested in. And, and that's the, that's the thing you do for everybody, but that is so differentiated. You can't possibly say that's just the one size fits all approach. Yeah, I think that's right. And and the only push I guess I'd say is what a kid is interested in, particularly when they're young, is still extremely malleable and variable. So don't assume. But the point is teachers want to come at it from a question that sparks that interest in that mm -hmm. child so that they will learn things that are important. And yeah. you don't necessarily sometimes that's a one size fits all question for a class. But oftentimes if you've already dug through units on revolutionary war and causes and whatever else and into civil war and reconstruction and so forth. And they ask you a question and I haven't done any of that yet. Or like, I don't have the background knowledge on it, maybe from my home life or something. The question for you maybe falls totally flat. Whereas for me, I'm like, whoa, you mean the US fought against itself? Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? And so it's like, you're like, duh, like I knew that. And so that's the sort of thing I think when we talk about interest based, I do think we have to poke a little bit harder at what that means, mm -hmm. but it still comes back to teachers being able to really, you know, engage in those small conversations with kids. And I think that goes to the second thing I was going to say actually 
quite nicely, which is I'd like to see a lot more co-teaching. I'd like to see three, four educators with many, many more students so that to your point, maybe like uh, you get to spend time doing a bunch of small group and tutoring sessions with children to ignite that fire in them and get them to be excited and figure out what's the in so that they care about something that's you know important for them to learn. Another teacher sits there and is like, don't want anything to do with that because I'm not one size fits all either, but I love geeking out on the data and assessments mm-hmm. and figuring out what's the right groupings of kids. And like, and by the way, I love being a content expert and delivering an exciting conversation on whatever it is, right. Or designing a project on some unit, whatever it might be, but we create the ability for teachers to start ping-ponging off each other and not have to do every single thing that is important to occur in a classroom, but allow them to specialize mm-hmm. far more while to your point, sharpening their and deepening their relationships with the kids themselves. Cause that yeah. to me is the biggest thing that falls by the wayside right now. And one of the things districts are facing is like, Hey, I'm a teacher. I have COVID in my house. I got to take time off or gee, I'm a human being and I have to mm-hmm. take a day off. Cause like, that's <laughs> what happens with human beings. And now we go to our substitute pile of teachers, which is, we know much smaller, whatever your debate is on the teacher shortage, we know the substitutes are a lot shorter mm-hmm. than it was, but now, even if we do get one, <laughs> we're calling them in where they have no idea where the class was. Whereas if we have a co-teaching model four teachers, three teachers, whatever it might be, one has to take time off. We get a substitute in. There's no continuity loss. Those relationships, that understanding of where you Jethro are in your learning and what your continuum is, that's not, that doesn't fall off the plate. So we create a more supportive, flexible environment for the teachers, which in turn creates a more supportive, flexible environment that's more human to human for the students as well. And that to me is a huge shift. And I think it goes to the last thing you just said, which is it also implies that like, Hey, I can learn my content through the internet, right. Or through this software program. That's not the scarce resource. Instead, I want the teacher having a lot of those conversations to say like, how does this apply? Do you really understand it? What can we do with it? All those connections that do not occur naturally through just a very linear sequence of content. Yeah, I, I think that's so valuable. And I, I I love the idea of co-teaching because it does make it more personable. So my second year teaching, I was I was in a group, a team with a social studies teacher and a science teacher and I taught English. And when the science teacher needed to do small group science experiments, we could give her 10 students at a time instead of the 30 she usually had. And the social studies teacher and I would take 45 or 50 students at a time because we had the flexibility that the time didn't matter because they were in our little pod. We could do those kinds of things and she could do much cooler things with the science uh, curriculum than she would have been able to otherwise. Some things she couldn't do with 30 kids in her class. It wasn't safe and it wouldn't be wise. But because of that, we were able to adjust and change. And for those who are fans of Transformative Principle, you might remember the interview with John LaFoon where he was able to eliminate his need for substitutes by doing something very similar to what you're talking about, that they did not even need that budget item in their budget. 
because all they would ever need was a long-term sub if somebody was out for an extended period of time. If you're out for a day, we don't even need someone to come in because we handle that internally and absorb those kids in other ways. So they're still getting what they need and we're doing it in a way that is, is beneficial, not just to them, but also to the bottom line as a bonus. Wow. I, I wish I had had that example in my book. I think that's huge because that goes to the principle of how can we better allocate our resources mm-hmm. to serve the actual needs that we have in our community? That's amazing, right? If I don't have to rely on substitutes and sort of this, uh, not just the money, but the amount of time it, it takes out of a principal and instructional leader's day to try to fill those gaps and we're not losing the learning with the students when a substitute comes in, how many more things could you be accomplishing in your school and as a teacher? And I love that, ex- that example you just gave on the science teacher being able to do 10 students instead of 30 for the experiment, because how much more can you make sure then that those students are actually understanding the scientific method and the mm-hmm. principles of science from that, as opposed to you know, the stuff that I did as a kid in a science lab, which was like super rote based, like heated the, heated the chemical with the Bunsen burner, then just wrote down a bunch of things and then checked it off and got out. Right. And so like, by the way, just to pull this thread through when I went to college and they were like, okay, now it's lab time for your science class. I didn't sign up for the lab because I didn't understand (laughs) what a real science lab was because I thought it was just dumb experiments to prove what we'd already read in the book. Right. Yeah. What a miss. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is hilarious. I'm so glad you shared that. Uh, Because I did something similar. Although, thankfully, somebody said, no, you have to take the lab. And I was like, why would I take the lab? We're just going to read it in the book. Like, if the science is already settled, what's the point? And they're like, "Uh, that's not what it's about. (laughs) Yeah, I wish wish someone had told me that. I literally... I, I had no idea. I didn't really understand what science was as a uh-huh. result. And you can see, whereas with 10 kids, that wouldn't fall through the cracks, right? That right. science teacher could make sure, hey, you got a different result from them. Maybe it's your process, but mm-hmm. maybe we're figuring something else out that we have to think about. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. So this has been a fantastic conversation. We've only talked about a very tiny portion <laughs> of the book. There's so much more in there. One of the things that I would definitely direct people to is chapter five, which is student experience guarantee mastery, which we didn't even talk about, but that is a much different idea of what learning is compared to what we typically think of it. So the book is called From Reopen to Reinvent, and you can find it pretty much anywhere. So make sure you go check that out. Definitely a good book, and I encourage everybody to get a copy of it. And Michael, thanks so much for being here and talking about it. Jethro, thanks for uh, having the conversation with me and for all the work that you're doing with schools now around the country. Yeah, thank you. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.